Last time we did this, I felt a little bad because we didn't kind of frame up the topic and explain what we were going to be talking about, and then there were all these words getting thrown out. So I'm going to throw out the words now so that when our debaters come up, you won't be like, what the heck is a cessationist? Is that like people that want to leave America and just have Texas be its own nation? It's not. Okay. Here's the deal, guys. We're going to be talking tonight about gifts of the Holy Spirit. This gets pretty churchy, so if you're not churchy, buckle up. Um, we believe, Christians believe, in this thing called the Trinity. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, she's going way back. Don't worry. It's this mysterious thing. It's kind of hard to understand, but that there is one God and three persons. Blessed Trinity. Okay. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I didn't get any Holy Ghosts. Okay, okay, okay. Anyway, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and kind of the most mysterious one, right? Like maybe we don't think about it or learn about it as much depending on how you grew up, but that's what we're talking about tonight. And Christians believe that the Holy Spirit has given gifts to believers, to people that have said yes to Jesus, have surrendered to him. You still with me? Okay, if you guys talk this much when the debaters are up here, Kelly will come for you. I just can tell you that right now. Okay, so we believe that the Holy Spirit has given us gifts. Everybody that's on the panel tonight believes that. But we think a little differently about how they did it, and you're going to learn more about that tonight. So I've made you this handy continuum where on the left we have the cessationist, which is just a fancy word for people who would say, yes, the gifts of the Spirit are still happening, but the offices, the roles, the person, like instead of, yes, God heals, but maybe the person as a healer, maybe that was just for like the early church. Or maybe speaking in tongues still happens, but someone that is, like, or prophecy still happens, but a prophet. Mm, I'll let Josh explain that more later, but that would be the, that end of the spectrum. Then we go into continuationism. It's right in the name that the gifts of the Spirit continue, right? And all along the spectrum, you get more and more excited about the gifts of the Spirit until we get to where we are not going to talk about tonight. I mean, we might talk about it, but none of our panelists are in the space of being heretical because I vetted them. But has any, raise your hand if you've ever heard people say that you have to speak in tongues to be able to be saved. Yeah. Okay. I think everyone on our panel would say, mm, no. Um, but inside the brown line is where everyone on our panel is tonight. And they're going to talk about that. Does that kind of clear up kind of framing of where we are? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point because there are some Pentecostals that fall in the what we would call orthodox theology, like they think about it the way the Bible talks about and Christians over the years have agreed. And then there are some Pentecostals that believe, like we just said, things like you have to speak in tongues to be saved or there's just a, a hyper-legalism and things like that. So without further ado, I'm going to call Josh Feinberg up. Here he is. He's going to be our first debater. So yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely good. <clears throat> yep, thank you very much. If I could, um, uh, before I get started, I wanted to just say a couple things. So first thing is, Sarah Stone, thank you so much for uh, not only inviting us, but also arranging, doing all the behind-the-scenes work. The fact that there's so many people here, a packed house, uh, is because of this young lady and all of the volunteers. And so thank you so much to the Theology of Tap leadership team. The, the, the next group that I want to thank is, is you all. And so you spent the time, the effort, the drive, the parking all the way to try to make it here and spend your Tuesday night listening to kind of a discussion amongst theological topics. Thank you for that. And lastly, I want to thank Kelly, Jim, 
Mac and Mace for engaging, for studying, for prepping for this, uh, this event and this dialogue. I'm so thankful that I get a chance to uh, be sharpened by folks that have a difference of opinion. That's how I think how we get, how we grow. Um, comfort is a great place, but that's not where we, anything grows. And so I'm really thankful for you all spending the time and effort to do so. Um, and, and with that, I, I, I want to start off by saying the things that I appreciate about the other side, the continuationist camp, the charismatic camp. Um, in order for you to hold that position, you have to take the Bible seriously. And I'm thankful for that. Like, you can't take the Bible seriously and not believe in the spiritual gifts. And the second thing is, thank you for believing in the supernatural. Thank you for not going down a postmodern, liberal kind of thought process that denies the supernatural that God can do amazing things. Also, thank you for having an intent to worship and desire to worship the Holy Spirit. I would like to remind that just because there's an intent and desire doesn't mean equate to obedience, but you know, I'm very thankful that they're focused on that, that they are trying to worship the Holy Spirit in the way that they deem fit. Lastly, I have a disclaimer. While I am representing Christ Community Church C3 West Houston, um, I am not speaking on behalf of the church. I lead the young adults ministry, and we, the elders hold different views on this topic, and they graciously granted me permission to say what I believe about this topic. Um, and so if you don't really like anything that I have to say tonight, please don't hold it against my amazing church and body and elders. And so thank you for that. So um, as I kind of kick off here, cessationism is not... God does not perform miracles today. It is also not that he sovereignly commands every molecule on the face of the planet. It doesn't deny neither of those things. And yes, cessationists believe that God still heals today. Cessationism is also not solely based on 1 Corinthians 13 and the time of maturity or the perfect, depending on your translation or completion. There's a lot of different ways to bake the cessationist cake. Cessationism is not an attack, an attack on the person or the work of the Holy Spirit, but rather a defense for him and his glorious works. Lastly, cessationism is not a new idea, and it didn't originate outside of the church. It's actually the most accepted view throughout church history. So what is cessationism? We've got this handy chart over here. Cessationism teaches that the miraculous or the revelatory gifts of the Spirit have ceased at the end of the apostolic age or the maturity of the church. Cessationism does teach that the purpose of these miraculous revelatory gifts were to validate the message and the messengers during a foundational inauguration of the church. See Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Or Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Cessationism teaches that the foundational age of the church is one of the most unique times in all of human history with the overlap of one covenant that was vanishing away and the inauguration of a new covenant. Very unlike any other age in church history, Hebrews 8.13. Finally, cessationism teaches that the contemporary gifts or experiences heralded by both my charismatic and continuationist brothers and sisters are very different than what we see in the Bible. We are using the same words, but very different dictionaries. 
To give you an example, modern prophecy versus biblical prophecy. The word prophet is used in the New Testament to describe both Old and New Testament prophets without a distinction. There is no distinction made between two uh, between these two of Old Testament and New Testament. Therefore, the biblical standard must be applied to all that claim to speak for God. The standards are listed in Deuteronomy chapter 13, which I'm about to read. Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to their words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether the, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. The first test of a prophet as seen by Old Testament standards is that they must be consistent with orthodox. They must be consistent with what the Bible teaches, what the revealed word has taught. They don't go against something. They are consistent. They are in line with it. Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 22 says, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is a second standard. You cannot speak presumptuously. You cannot say something that might be okay or might be true. Like, it has to be 100% true. Lastly, Ezekiel 13, 3 through 9 says, Thus says the Lord your God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that might stand in the battle of the day of the Lord. You have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying vision, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. The entire Old Testament talks often about false prophets, those that claim to speak for God and in fact do not. 
It has pretty damning language in some senses. It calls them dry wells, fruitless trees, hideous stains, vomiting, eating dogs, mud-loving pigs, and ravenous wolves are some of the references given to false prophets in 2 Peter and Jude. I am not claiming that everyone that says they have the gift of prophecy and is, is someone somehow aligned with all of those words. I'm trying to let you understand the seriousness of what false prophecy is. The Bible takes it extremely serious and so much so that it pinned a death penalty to it. It's not something that we can just take and just go, well, you know what, we can make a, it's a work in progress. It does not seem like it is a work in progress throughout the Old Testament nor the New Testament. The continuationist position on the gift of prophecy is that it's not infallible. It's not inerrant. It allows for the fallibility of the prophet in his or her interpretation. Well, God's word that was spoken to that prophet is true. Their interpretation, they're fallible, they make mistakes, they got to learn and develop this gift. That's not what we see from the standard that is in Scripture. This is contradictory to all the standards laid out for biblical prophets. And lastly, the modern miracles and revelatory gifts fall short of the biblical standards across the board. They are counterfeits, they are inauthentic miracles, and they that were not truly powered by the Holy Spirit during this unique and special time in the church's infancy. And so I ask you to just consider the words of Scripture when applying it to understanding what these experiences might be. And then also, don't be upset or be angry with folks that might have a different opinion or a different interpretation for this, but seek the Scripture. Be good Bereans that sought out the Scriptures daily to see if these things are actually so. And so with that, I'll uh, turn it over to Kelly. Thank you, Josh. I am not angry. I am not angry. Thank you, seriously, that was legit. Um, My name is Kelly. I'm gonna talk about why I believe what I believe about the Holy Spirit and how the gifts of the Spirit um, are still active today, including tongues, healing, prophecy, all the gifts of the Spirit that we see in Scripture. So I'm gonna do that by um, four different areas. The first one is Scripture. So in my interpretation of scripture, which I say with humility, because I think every conversation is essentially a conversation about hermeneutics, right? It's essentially a conversation about how we read and interpret and therefore apply the scriptures. And so in my interpretation, I do not find anywhere that some gifts have ceased while others remain. Um, I find that in the early Christian communities um, that there was a full expression and a full expectation of every spiritual gift, including tongues, prophecy, healing, etc. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul assumes, as well as the letter he writes to the Roman house churches, he assumes that the believers will prophesy. He assumes that they will speak in tongues. Um, These are not infallible words at this time in the early Christian church, right? Like, this is why Paul is instructing the churches, because the people are human. There's lots of room for human error when we are 
Uh, again, the definitions is really helpful because for um, us as charismatics, I guess, we would say that prophecy is hearing um, a word from God on behalf of someone else. And so it's the word of God spoken for the real lived experience of today. But that certainly would have been the case in the first century, right? Which is why they are acting up. They're acting a fool. They're, they're writing to Paul, like, help us understand how to sort out this gift that the Holy Spirit had, you know, come at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had equipped the church with gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongues, and they're acting up. So that's why Paul is, again, writing to them. Uh, but Paul assumes this will happen. He writes extensively about it. Um, and there's no, there's no place, at least in my interpretation, where Paul's like, you know, you should really use the gifts quickly, though, because they're going to stop, you know, or, you know, like, we don't see that in Jesus. We don't see, we don't see that with the work of the Spirit. Um, secondly, in the Bible, there are no natural um, versus supernatural gifts. Um, there's not miraculous versus non-miraculous gifts. It's not a distinction that Paul makes. Um, it's the opposite, actually. At Corinth, Paul is reprimanding the believers for ranking the spiritual gifts for putting them on this like hierarchy because they were saying like, well, you have to speak in tongues and, um, you know, this about prophecy. And he writes in first Corinthians 12, four, there are different spiritual gifts, but the same spirit, there are different ministries in the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. A demonstration of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. So working, works of power, working of miracles, these gifts are listed alongside other gifts. The gift of faith, for example, comes up in the Corinthian church. And he's saying these are all from the spirit of God. In that sense, they're all spiritual gifts. So it's a spiritual gift if it's given to you by the spirit of God. Uh, we see from the letters, like I just read, that the gifts are given for the common good. So verse seven, a demonstration of the spirit is given to each person for the common good. Uh, Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ, right? We see that in Corinthians, we see that in Romans, we see that, we see that in Ephesians. And so it's this idea that like God is going to equip, God is going to give gifts for unique communities um, for a specific place and time, which is why the spiritual gifts list that you find in the Bible, those are not exhaustive, those are not comprehensive. Like, if your gift is not on that list, it doesn't mean you got passed up. The Holy Spirit was like, nah, not with that one. No, that just means those gifts were present in those communities for that specific place and time. They're given for the common good, um, and yeah, some cessationists believe that certain gifts like healing, prophecy, and tongues have ceased because we don't need them. Um, some will say that they're for authenticating, they were for authenticating the gospel to, you know, a non-believing or a pagan world. And now we have the full word of God in the Bible through Christ. Um, and so those gifts, maybe the more charismatic gifts or the sign gifts, which again, it's not a distinction that the Bible makes, are not needed because, you know, the Bible is all we need. Uh, for me, the point is very difficult to make when you look at, you know, this post-Christian, post-church, post-everything world that we're living in, right? Like, why are those gifts not needed to authenticate the gospel any longer, like today? Um, and then additionally, um, that's a pretty American idea, right? Because overseas you know, villages in Africa, we would say, you know, unreached places in the Muslim world, we would say, well, I mean, it's an unreached place, so why would those gifts not apply to authenticate the gospel in those places? Um, secondly, 
as a vineyard person, I'm the lead pastor at the Vineyard Church in Sugarland, Stafford. Um, the kingdom of God theology is very important to us. It's kind of core to who we are. Um, and so we talk about when Jesus, you know, Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. That's simply the reign of God or the will of God on the earth. Um, in Luke 4, you know, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim, proclaim release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then, you know, you have the, the commissioning, of course, of the disciples. John 14, specifically, Jesus says, you know, you are going to do even greater works than these, than I did, greater works than I did, which certainly would have been healing, you know. Um, and so he's expecting the disciples that he's sending out to go do the works of the kingdom. Of course, at Pentecost, we see all of the gifts at work signaling to the church that even though Jesus was gone, he had given the Holy Spirit, he'd breathed on them, and he was going to give them power to do the work of the kingdom. And so as the church today in 2023, we are still living in this eschatological age of the kingdom. It's the already, Jesus has already come, and it's the not yet, he hasn't come again, but there's not a, there's not like a middle stage, there's not a middle age to that, right? Like it's, it's Jesus and then it's the Holy Spirit through the church. So again, I don't think that there's evidence for any of that ceasing. How am I doing? A couple minutes, okay. Third, um, the historical and traditional um, tradition sort of witness to this. Um, you know, we won't go all the way through church history, but let's suffice it to say that you have the medieval world, right? Let's say fifth through, you know, 15th century, um, where I, I disagree with my friend Josh that the main or the most accepted view was a cessationist view. I, I don't find that. Um, in the medieval world, um, you know, Charles Taylor called this uh, an enchanted world, right? This was the world of the Bible. This was the ancient world, certainly. Um, but in, by enchanted, he means that there was no difference between the natural and the spiritual, the sacred and the secular, right? Like the Enlightenment gave us this sort of dualism where we've divided body and soul, we've divided sacred and secular. Um, that's a pretty recent, in terms of church history, that's a pretty recent phenomenon. And in the enchanted world, the world of the Bible, the medieval world, um, transcendent experiences, so this would include tongues, miracles, the blind being able to see, the sick being healed, the dead being raised, etc. Those were not considered supernatural, right? Because there wasn't that divide. That was considered an accepted occurrence to be expected in an enchanted world, a world governed by spirits. It would just be what kind of spirits rule the world good spirits or evil spirits. Um, in addition to that, we see a lot of, a lot of really early Christian, um, like mystics, for example, who were crazy charismatics, y'all. Crazy, like visions, dreams. Uh, Hildegard, you know, she was a healer. People came to receive healing. They certainly, um, you know, like translated or proclaimed their dreams and visions from God. You have the desert fathers and mothers even earlier than that. People are coming out to the desert to interact with these monastic communities to receive healing, to receive words from the Lord. And so I think that in that sense, this question about what gifts have ceased, I do think that's a pretty secular question. 
That's a question that's born out of an enlightened age of reason, dualistic, pretty American, honestly, uh, view. Um, yeah, last, my experience. You know, cessationists sort of build their argument in, in, some, in some ways, not, not everyone, but they build their argument on the gifts have ceased based on their experience, right? Because they haven't experienced tongues. Or some people, like, you've prayed for the gift of prophecy, and you don't think you've ever got it. So you think, well, I think it's probably ceased because I haven't got it. So it's based on experience. Well, charismatics, we do the same thing, right? We build a theology around our experience, and my experience um, is one in which I um, was baptized in the Holy Spirit at 15. I grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist, small town in West Texas, and I didn't really learn about the Holy Spirit. We, I, I joke that we learned about Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures because we knew our Bibles, let me tell you. We knew our Bibles. But when I was 15, I was at a Church of Christ camp. We didn't have teaching on the Holy Spirit. We didn't have an altar call. We didn't have, you know, anybody teaching us about anything to do with the Spirit. There was no music, um, no prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I was in a room full of, you know, 12 other 15-year-olds with two 21-year-old college students, you know, who decided that was a good idea. And we had finished our acapella music worship service. And yeah, four-part harmony too. Mm-hmm. And as we uh, were there and praying and ending the night, the Holy Spirit filled the room in a tangible, palpable way. 15-year-olds were, you know, Pentecostals would call it slain in the spirit, falling out, crying, uh, confessing sin, prophetic words were being given. Of course, I didn't have language for that at the time. And these 21-year-old college students are like, what the, what do we do with these kids? Um, in college, I began to speak in tongues. I remember buying a book on tongues when I was in high school and like hiding it under my like, covers at night, because I didn't want my mom to see me reading it, because she would think I had like gone off the deep end. So that is my experience. I have more experiences about that, but the fourth area is experience. That's it. So I've, they're good, right? Um, I've asked them each to just take five minutes to kind of respond to the other one, so I'm gonna let them do that now, and then we will take a break. But as you're listening, I realize I should have said this before, um, there's, a number up here that you can text questions to because in the second half of the night, our panel, which is going to be these two guys and three others, um, will answer all of your questions and you will leave with every question answered. Okay. Here you go. Awesome. Oh, you need the mic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? That's, yeah, no, no worries. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. So um, there's, there would be much to respond to, and I would like to just say that I, I do affirm um, uh, Kelly's position here if we redefine church history. And so uh, I'm much less ecumenical uh, in, in understanding what I define as the church. And so it's just a terms thing. It's not anything else. Like, I do not include the monastic monks within Orthodox. I do not include the Quakers, the enlightened Quakers within Orthodox. I do not include the Mormons within Orthodox. And so there's a few different reasons why I would say the, the primary like, view is the cessationist position. And so uh, just to clarify that, they, um, 
the, the next thing is that I, I noticed that Kelly stated that uh, she thinks that without um, caveat that all the gifts are for today. And so uh, I believe that most Christians are in fact partial cessationists and at least admitting that one of the spiritual gifts has in fact ceased. And that would be the gift of apostles on 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And so Jesus, the prophets, and the 12 apostles are the foundation of the household of God and therefore held a unique gift and office. And that's Ephesians 2, uh, 2 19 through 20. Uh, Paul identified himself as the last of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Uh, Revelation 21, 14 says that the 12 foundational stones named, are named after the 12 apostles. And so, like, and in fact, even the founder of the Vineyard Church, John Wimber, admits that this is in fact true. And so, th the idea here is that there is a kind of cascading argument that if there is in fact one gift, and it is listed within the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, that if there is in fact one gift that you have determined that is not for today because we do not have New Testament capital A apostles, like then you, you perhaps have to give us a framework and how you have determined that that one gift is gone, but then the rest of the gifts. And I know that also it was stated that, that there is only spiritual gifts. There's not specific categories or so. Again, if you try to take that position, you're going to be stuck with the gift of apostleship and how you're classifying that as the rest of all the gifts, but not there. And so uh, the cascading argument is kind of stand throughout church history is kind of that if there are no apostles, the word apostle is a legal representative. And so it was a very big deal for a prophet, an apostle, to have face-to-face, -to, -face, to have contact with Jesus Christ. And so that is, again, like unless it's happening today, and again, what you have is the miraculous story of Paul and his conversion, why can't that continue to happen? Like, we have Muslims that, in fact, are seeing Jesus in their visions and everything like that. Why are they not apostles now? Why can they not have the gift of capital A apostleship? And so, and if the argument flows that no apostles, perhaps no prophets, if no prophets, then perhaps no tongue speakers, perhaps no tongue speakers, no miracle workers. There's not necessarily a tough time for us to get into every single thing, but I would ask a few different questions because um, while I do not want to base anything on experience, I'd much rather just let's look at the text and let's try to exegete and let's try to do our work here. But, you know, I would have some questions that I would want answered is, you know, why are we not adding any additional scriptures or special revelation to the canon? Why, what exactly does hearing a word from God entail, and how is it different than prophecy? What about the damages of those incorrect prophecies or incomplete prophecies? I have plenty of experiences, as does most people, most likely, even in the charismatic church, of the damage done by a false prophecy. It's one of the reasons that in my opening statements, you explain, like God lays out what the damage can be. Imagine telling someone something about their life and it not being true. And like what, what ripple effect that that could cause. Imagine telling someone that they're going to die or a loved one's going to die and it doesn't actually happen and what changed in their life. Maybe they quit a job, all of those things. And so this is a very serious topic, and I appreciate that while we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ founded on the gospel message, there are real questions that must be answered and not just left up to experience.
Yeah, that's good. So I think that like the apostleship gift, yeah, it is difficult. Again, like I'm going to come from this at, from a place of like God is going to give the gift, the gifts to the community of faith according to what's needed. So um, that's where, I mean, that's how I, w- I would respond to that. I mean, the gift of apostleship is this idea of, you know, starting, starting something new, generating something new. So arguably, again, I don't know that it's helpful to make like modern day um, comparisons. You might want to use a church planter or a missionary that would have the gift of a- apostleship. Um, but the offices... Yeah, again, I don't, ne- I don't necessarily, that's not necessarily a position I would take. Like there's office of apostle, there's office of a prophet. I would come at it more from God gives gifts to God's people um, according to what's needed. Um, anyone could move in or operate in the gift of prophecy at any given time according to what the Spirit wants to do. Same thing with apostleship, same thing with tongues, same, things with, same, same thing with faith, um, all, all of the gifts there. Um, yeah, that's how I would respond. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. Should I give it back to Josh? Yeah, you want to go to Susan? I will say that, yes, I think that it is a very serious conversation. It's a very serious conversation. It's a very serious thing to speak on behalf of God. Um, I think that it's something that has to be done with a lot of humility. So if you're talking about the gift of prophecy specifically... And we, we teach people this in the vineyard, you know, like literally how to do that, how to offer a prophetic word or how to offer a word of knowledge, even in prayer. And so that has to be done with humility. That has to be done with discernment. Something that, again, we do at the vineyard is when someone um, is receiving a word from the Lord for somebody else, we teach them to ask, does that feel true? So you're approaching it with a lot of humility. A lot of tenderness, not thus saith the Lord, and it's authoritative in the same way that the Bible is. Certainly, if it goes against Scripture, then that's not something we're going to trust. Um, but so teaching people to do it with humility. And again, I think the argument that we should not do something, so we should not speak prophetically, we should not pray in tongues, we should not move in the gifts of the Spirit because of the potential harm or because of the harm that's been caused because there's been some crazy stuff that's happened in charismatic world, 100%. Um, But there's been some crazy stuff and damaging stuff and um, trauma stuff in every stream of Christianity, unfortunately, right? So we gotta disqualify all of the white men, basically, because you know they've done all the harm. So no, no more, like no. So it's not a reason to not do it, it's not a reason to not explore it, it's not a reason not to move in the gifts, um, but to do it with a lot of humility and a lot of discernment, and in community too, right? Because the gifts are not given for one person to be authoritative over another community of people. Like that's the hierarchy, right? That's what sort of levels at Pentecost. It's this egalitarian, it's the sharing of leadership, it's this everybody gets gifts, everybody gets to play, everybody gets a seat at the table. And so there's those checks and balances there. Even for someone gifted in a prophetic word, that has to be checked, that has to be balanced, that has to be discerned, and has to be done in community because there's not one person that we trust to have full access to God's truth to speak that without any sort of accountability. And so I would probably say that that's where the damage comes is a lack of discernment, a lack of humility, a lack of community, a lack of accountability. 
That's where the damage comes. It's not with the gift of prophecy. Hey guys, Sarah here. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I know it was awesome, but I just wanted to tell you that Theology on Tap is growing. We are now a standalone ministry, an independent nonprofit, and to grow, we need your help. We're offering more live events, more follow-up opportunities to reach the unchurched, and increased partnerships with local churches. You can help us grow by praying for us, by telling your friends or church about us, and of course, partnering with us financially. To donate, go to houstontot.com forward slash give. Okay, enjoy the rest of the show. I want you to tell us your name, where you're from, and name one or two spiritual gifts that you have. If you don't like... (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, we'll give you guys time to think, and we'll start on this end. That's funny. That's funny. My name is Kelly. I'm the lead pastor at the Vineyard. I am gifted to um, pastor and to lead and to do anything else that the Spirit wants to gift me with in the given moment. The end. Wow. That's intense. Thank you. Uh, Jim Stern, I have a ministry called Trexo. I've been in pastoral ministry in Houston for 25 years. And uh, spiritual gifts, uh, teaching and uh, loving on people in very dark places. Uh, So my name is Mac Gervais, and I'm the lead planter of Church Project West Chase. And I believe that I have the gift of teaching and faith. Double fisting it. Uh, I'm Mace. I am a church planting resident at Neartown Church, going to be planting, Lord willing, uh, the Journey Church Houston in the Greater Heights area. And uh, my spiritual gifts, I would say teaching is probably my number one, and then uh, administration, leadership, probably a a number two. Low voice, number three. Yeah. (laughs) And again, my name is Josh Feinberg. I attend Christ Community Church West Houston, um, and my spiritual gifts would be teaching and administration. Okay, I'm going to, before we get to these questions, you guys, like, literally 10 questions came in after you said something, so I'm going to let you respond really quickly. I'm not going to read all 10 questions, but the gist is, what is he talking about when it comes to this whole apostle thing? There's only 12? That's crazy. There's more than 12. You get where I'm going. Can you respond to that, and then we will kick off the other questions? You can text your question in, sir. No, yes, 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 we can. No. All right, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, but going forward, it's not an open mic night. So text it in, but yes, will you tell us where in the Bible you can kind of get that idea from? Yeah, and so, uh, look, I, I understood and... Um, I wish that, I apologize, I had a couple extra minutes. I wish I would have gone in a little bit more in depth. I obviously, with such a big topic, it's very hard to be concise and condensed. And so what I mean when we're talking about the word apostle, and in most camps would understand there is capital A apostles and there is lowercase apostles. Like in the same way that there is the office of elder, but in First Timothy it also talks about elders that just from an age perspective. So it's the same word but different contexts. And so the word apostle means legal representative. Okay, sorry, sorry. Okay. Sorry. He'll be a gangster, he'll adjust it. Yeah. Okay. And so the word apostle means legal representative. 
And so it, it comes from the Jewish legal system. That's how it was used. And so to be a capital A apostle, you are the legal representative of Christ. And so when people start laying hands on people or you see a number of different places where there's apostles that are lowercase apostles, they are legal representatives of the churches, but they are not in the same category as the capital A apostles. And so when you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you see the listings of, like, of prophecy, and you have the listings, and then at number one is apostle. That is a capital A apostle, and the context, I, I think, is very difficult to prove otherwise, that somehow that this is a lower form when prophecy is listed underneath, when you have prophets, and so this is where the concept, I think, is derived from, and so when you have, uh, and, and again, most camps, including the Vineyard Camp, that would say the capital A apostle, that has ceased. And so that there are not additional capital A apostles. And so I'm just explaining what would be from the vineyard. That doesn't mean there's not nuances. I know that there's a lot of different uh, views, but I want to just clarify that. Mace is also a cessationist, and so. Ish. Uh, ish, well, yeah, there you go. Cessation-ish, okay. I'm gonna move us on. I have four questions that are all really similar. So I'm gonna ask all four of them because they're all about tongues and maybe someone will get their wish tonight. Here we go. First person asks, should tongues be other human languages or can it be a supernatural language? Next person asks, I feel that charismatics can treat speaking in tongues as a party trick instead of it being used as a tool for bringing understanding. How can charismatics work to keep spiritual gifts from becoming self-serving and focus on serving God? Almost done. This person says, why speak in the language of angels? And last but not least, I can't find it, but it was basically saying what's the, uh, well, I remember them. It was saying um, our, when we say speaking in tongues, are we talking about a personal prayer language or are we talking about known languages like it happened at Pentecost? So all of these are about speaking in tongues. I thought I would lump them together because we have so many questions. So talk about tongues. Whoever wants to go. <laughs> Well, I, I think that um, the, what puts me kind of in the middle uh, from some of my charismatic friends to my left <laughs> is I think that the, the question of definition is actually important about what tongues is. Uh, I, I personally, I think when you look at the book of Acts, you see Acts 2, um, languages are being spoken. Uh, Luke goes out of his way to list all of the nations that are being represented at that time. It was very clear. People said, I'm hearing the gospel preached in my own language. And so I don't know that there is uh, a great case to be made that there is a significant, uh, like a place for there to be something different. What I wish that we would have gotten into a little bit is I think some of this conversation about prayer language versus uh, actual languages really more births out of the the uh, ripple effect of the Zusa Street revival and uh, what has happened in the church over the last hundred or so years. Uh, but I, I personally look at the early church fathers. You can look at Tertullian, you can look at uh, John Chrysostom, you can look at, um, uh, I'm losing one off the top of my head. There seems to be a consistent spot when tongues is brought up that their, their understanding was it was known languages, which I still think exists today. Language, yeah. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, 
So the rule is just eat the mic and they will do the work back there. Hello, and I hello, think they're hello. having... Yeah. So are tongues actual languages or are they a prayer language, words of angels, whatever? And, and the answer is both. Certainly in Acts, like Max said, I agree with all of that. Um, but there does seem to be, like, again, especially at, at um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, there seems to have been a misuse of the gift of tongues within the community of faith. So to what extent they were misusing it, we're not sure. It was probably some sort of public, you know, um, public manifestation of the gift. And his critique is you do not have an interpreter. So you do not use, you don't, you know, move in the, the gift of tongues in the public assembly without an interpreter. He goes on to say that tongues builds up the believer, right? This is 12 through four, chapters 12 through 14. First Corinthians, tongues builds up the believer, but prophecy builds up the church. So he's saying don't speak in tongues or pray in tongues without an interpreter and, you know, desire the gift of prophecy sort of, you know, more than tongues so that it edifies the church. So most charismatics who have experienced tongues um, contemporarily, um, some, some would say I've experienced it in an actual language in a foreign country and God gave me that gift to be able to preach the gospel. Great. Um, others of us have a personal prayer language that is that sort of, you know, groans of the spirit that words cannot express. It's what Paul's probably talking about um, to the church at Corinth. It's um, unintelligible words, sounds. Um, again, I believe that tongues is given to communities of faith or to individuals according to what is needed. So if you have not received the gift of tongues and you want it, hey, we can pray for you tonight. Come on. including 1 Corinthians, is referring to known human languages. Um, certainly, as um, everyone has just agreed, that's what's going on in Acts 2. So you have to say, okay, well, what's going on in 1 Corinthians? Well, a couple things. Because um, you, you might think, okay, well, Acts 2, Pentecost, that happened historically, chronologically, before 1 Corinthians. So maybe something changed. But as far as when Acts was written versus when 1 Corinthians was written, Acts was actually most likely written after 1 Corinthians. And so um, that's, I think, one argument that would say 1 Corinthians is talking about known human languages. Secondly, I, I think we're confused just because we use this word tongues, and uh, that is the literal translation of that word, which I think is helpful. But we still use that word figuratively today. If we talk about speaking in my native tongue or my mother tongue, we're talking about a, a language. So what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14? He talks about speaking in the tongues of angels. Um, Paul is a, a rhetorician. So he is using rhetoric right there, that he's, he's, he's using hyperbolic language. And when he talks about that um, has already been mentioned, prophecy edifies the body where tongues edifies himself, I think he's talking about the, the problem that is present in the church in Corinth right there, that people are using their gifts to build up themselves. And so when someone was speaking in tongues, they're building themselves up in the sense that they're using that as a reason for boasting. So I think uh, the most natural way to read tongues is as known human languages. And I think that's consistent throughout the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. yeah just do it. Just grab it and go. Yeah. Uh, I want to make a uh, kind of a preamble uh, before addressing the particular issue. 
uh, and the, the preamble is this. I've been involved in uh, pastoral large group ministry like this for 25 years. And one of the reasons I left is because of my encountering lack of personal transformation with individual people in the congregations to which I was preaching. I think spiritual gifts are important. I'm far more interested in the inner healing work of the Holy Spirit to engage in the dark places of all of our hearts. And it's very regular that I will find people debating various theological topics as a defense mechanism to keep them away from more private matters of the heart that are actually more important to the Lord uh, than uh, whether or not you're speaking in tongues. It's a lot easier to speak in a tongue on Sunday than it is to ask for forgiveness from your wife on Monday. Uh, and so, uh, and so I, I, wanna, I wanna lay that as a foundation because while I think spiritual gifts are, are important across the, what do they call this, a dais or the panel or whatever, uh, the, you know, the real, my angst really is for the freedom and the heart transformative, transformative work of the Holy Spirit. Now, with respect to tongues specifically, 1 Corinthians 14, I'm a real big believer in this, in the angelic language. Now, I'm a hardcore, gave my life to Jesus. It was 100% Jesus. Along the way, I started developing my intimacy with God the Father, separate and distinct from Jesus. And then after that, I started cultivating and developing my intimacy with the Holy Spirit, becoming fully Trinitarian. I'm not charismatic and I'm not evangelical. Don't ask me to pick. I'm Trinitarian. I'll take all three of them. Thank you very much. But in my experience, here's the deal. In my experience, in my getting alone with the person of the Holy Spirit and just allowing, just getting lost beyond intellect. Uh, Western Christianity is hyper-intellectual. Sorry, Dr. Ben Blackwell. It's hyper-intellectual. Uh, I would have failed your class. Oh, th there you go. Hey, there we go. Good mix. Uh, it's hyper- <laughs> It's hyper-intellectualized. It's hyper-intellectualized hyper and the spirituality of our faith so oftentimes is lost so that we can explain everything that's happening and everything that's going on. And, and yet we say we believe in an infinite God that you cannot explain it. You're explaining everything that he's doing. And so in my own personal development and study, 1 Corinthians 14, intimacy with the Holy Spirit, I have these experiences with the Holy Spirit that are just beyond rational words. And I get so frustrated with the limitations of the English language. I studied the Hebrew, I studied Greek, I went to seminary with biblical languages, I didn't take the baby the way. Yeah, uh, um, I did all of that, man, I've done the intellectual route, so on and so forth, I get along with the Holy Spirit and I run out of words, man, I'm just flat out of words. And then the Spirit of God begins to express exactly what I'm experiencing, even though I don't understand it, I feel, man, whatever he's saying is spot on with what I'm encountering and I see that lining up Real well in 1 Corinthians 14, with the caveat, I'm way more interested in inner healing than I am speaking in tongues. And I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let one of these guys say something and then we're gonna get off of tongues because we're not gonna spend the whole time on that. But uh, if you like what Jim is saying, he is going to be in our podcast later this summer. So listen to the podcast, Theology on Air, on all podcast platforms and YouTube. Okay. <laughs> I want to add just one more thought uh, about tongues. So Kelly has used the line uh, a few times, and I'm paraphrasing, but that God gives gifts to the church for specific needs. I wholeheartedly agree. However, what does Scripture say is the purpose of tongues? What does Scripture say is the need that tongues is addressing? And the need, the purpose of tongues, is to be a sign to unrepentant Israel. 
So even in 1 Corinthians, Paul quotes Isaiah 28 that talked about because of Israel's unfaithfulness and unrepentance that he would speak to them in other tongues and other languages. Clearly in Isaiah 28, he's talking about other known human languages, the languages of the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 14. So the need for the gift of tongues is as a sign to unrepentant Israel. Okay, and just a reminder, one of our highest values in Theology on Tap is that we can charitably disagree. These people are all gonna have a good laugh once we're in the new earth and they figure out where, who was right and who was wrong. <laughs> but for tonight, we're gonna keep, you can yay when you hear something you like, but we're gonna keep the booze and that kind of stuff just in your heart between you and Jesus, okay? <laughs> one last thing. Yeah, just, um, if Eat it could. and then he'll do it. Yep, got it. So, uh, I, I agree with Mace here on the, tongues being a known language, and there's lots that we could discuss of why it came in Acts 2 and then Acts 8 and who was speaking in tongues in those, in in kind of this progressive revelation. But I I do want to also say that the Bible commands that no scripture is open for private interpretation and that we are to be, we are called to be sober-minded. And so we are supposed to use our minds. We are not supposed to just let go and let God, like we are instructed to be good stewards, showing ourselves approved that we have studied and we know how to work the scriptures. And so um, I I just wanted to say that, not not necessarily as a jab or anything, but just as a point of clarity that this is what scripture teaches. Okay, I know people want to say more about, hi. I know people want to say more about tongues. We may have to do a podcast where we like take this into the podcast sphere, okay? Um, But uh, this person wrote in just a little levity for us. Where did Kelly get her outfit? Talk about, wait, wait. Talk about inspired by the Holy Spirit, slay. One of my spiritual gifts is fashion. It's fashion. Okay. Uh, let's see, I got this at a boutique in Richmond called, oh, was that not a serious question? No. <laughs> called Vintage Hope, look it up. Okay, Richmond's outside the loop, I don't know. Okay, here's the next question. Suburbs. Where in scripture are we taught that the gifts should end at the closure of the canon? The canon is a fancy word for all the books in the Bible that we believe make up what we call the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Okay. Where uh, in scripture are we taught that the gifts should end at the closure of the canon, the Bible? Also, when was the canon closed? Meaning we're not adding books. I mean, we shouldn't be adding books. Uh, So... Um, Josh and I were talking before this that within uh, the broader spectrum, we feel like there's probably a larger spectrum on the continuationist side than our side. So Josh and I would agree on uh, more things than we disagree on being on the broadly secessionist side. However, one of the things that there is room for disagreement on the cessationist side is uh, that point. So I don't take the ceasing of the gifts being the closing of the canon, though there are other cessationist brothers who would say that. Um, Where they're getting that from is from 1 Corinthians 13. And so it's um, how are you taking this phrase that Paul uses as often translated as the perfect. I don't think perfect is probably the best translation. I think completion is probably a better uh, translation because he's contrasting it with the the partial. And so... um, I don't actually take that. So I am a 
broadly cessationist who actually does take the arrival, and this is a point that Josh and I would actually disagree on, uh, I take the, the, the perfect in that context uh, to be the return of Christ and that when Paul's talking about seeing face to face. However, that's not a slam dunk for the continuationist position. And even uh, continuationists like D.A. Carson will say that even if you take the perfect and seeing face to face being the return of Christ and that seeing face to face is that we are seeing him face to face, it does not necessitate that Paul said, Paul does not say that the gifts will absolutely continue until that point. Everyone, and this is the, this is the thing, is like all five of us on this stage are cessationists. Everybody agrees that 1 Corinthians 13 says that there are certain gifts that will cease. It's just a question of what gifts and when. Um, so even as a cessationist, I don't take it as uh, the close of the canon. I think it's the, uh, broadly speaking, the end of the apostolic age. So just to circle back to one thing, this, the lowercase apostles, um, feel free to double check me on this. But on, in my study in the New Testament, the word apostle is either used for, it's most often used by far for the capital A apostles, the 12 plus Paul, the handful of times, I believe there's only three, four, five times where lowercase a apostleship is referred to. It is always someone that was a close associate of the capital A apostles, someone that the capital A apostles had laid hands on and had authorized uh, that fits in with Josh's definition that he gave earlier. I know more people want to talk about this, but um, various people as you were talking were like, so when did it close? You don't have to say, but I'm just letting you know the masses want to know when was the canon closed. Yeah, you don't and, have to answer. Somebody, maybe. Yeah, and, and so to Mace's point, um, there, there's a number of things. That, first thing is that there's the assumption built in that they will continue. It's both sides have the same issue, that there's the assumption that is built that they will continue, because there's no verse that says that they will continue. It just says that, hey, there's going to cease. And so it's really a, a timing issue. I, I believe that the, the teleos or the perfect, the completion is better defined as the maturity. And that's what you have a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 13, where it's defining when I was a child, I spoke like a child. Like it, I think it's a maturity of the church. And that means when there's kind of, it's a mixture of things. It's the apostles, the capital A apostles kind of dying off. You have, uh, and they've left people, they've trained people to try to understand that. So there's elders now of church is there's kind of a structure that's put in place. The scriptures are being completed and passed around. And so it's this time that allows for spiritual gifts and the inauguration of the church that happens. And so a specific date, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's when the last apostle died. I think that it's through the maturity of the church. And I believe that that came to a completion. It was recognized by Irenaeus. I think that's who you're talking about. Uh, it was recognized by a number of different Eusebius, like uh, throughout these major church historians that that was the time in which these sign gifts. But if you wanted a really good verse for this, it would be Hebrews chapter two, verses three and four, that is written in past tense. And I think that that's a really hard thing to overcome. Right, I need a continuationist to weigh in on this, and then we'll move on, unless you don't want to. Are we ready for some slaying in the spirit? That's coming next. Let's go. Okay. Let's go. Question is, what does it mean to be slain in the spirit? You mentioned it, so. I mentioned it? Yeah, you said Slain when you were... the Spirit is what Pentecostals talk about when they're filled with the Spirit in an unexpected sort of way. And then the behavior like manifested could be falling down. It could be speaking in tongues. It could be... I mean, my friend Brian used to pretend to be slain in the Spirit when he was growing up, y'all. 
It's a we'll physical, have questions it's a physical for Brian manifestation later. of being filled with the Spirit. Anybody else want to weigh in yeah, on being dancing. slain? Did you have catchers? Yes. I didn't grow up Pentecostal, so that was not my story. Did you have catchers, Brian? Yes. Yeah, they had catchers. Yeah. There you go. There's an AG brother right there. <laughs> you had a catcher. You had people that would cover the, if someone was wearing a dress, for real. Modesty blankets. Pink blankets. Modesty blankets. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this goes back to, when we talk about being slain in the spirit, I, I, I think for me this is where we have to really narrow our focus on what we're talking about. Um, especially because, in respect to everybody here, scripture has to be our guide in how we um, are understanding the experiences. But I, I would also say that, like, this idea of being slain in the spirit, where the Holy Spirit comes on you in such a way that you fall out, um, and all the things that are associated with that. Uh, I don't, I just don't see that as a normative practice throughout the first 2,000 or so years of church history. To me, these are things that are a byproduct of the last 100 and, I don't know, 10, 15 years post the Azusa Street Revival, which if you don't know what that is, we can obviously get into those things, um, and then fast forwarding, fast forwarding in. There have been times where, and this is weird as a continuationist because it sounds like I'm flinging arrows at my side, but there have been times where we have gone into this specific thing and tried to reread back into church history um, experiences, like saying that maybe Hannah in the Old Testament when she was praying in such a way that, that the, the priest thought that she was drunk, oh, that, that's, that's being, you know, this slain in the spirit. But nobody thought that until the last hundred years when we had to explain what are we seeing here? So we're reading back into history something. I, I, I think that um, you can see a couple instances in scripture of kind of being slain in the spirit. Leviticus 10, 1, Nadab and Abihu were slain by God for offering, offering uh, fire, strange fire. Uh, then you have Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They were slain by the Spirit for lying to the Spirit. So I think there's a few different places that you have slain in the Spirit. All right. Thank you for that, Josh. Can, can I add one thing to that real quick? Um, so uh, I just want to add something to something that Kelly said in her definition of what it means to be slain with spirit. She said it's when you're, you're so filled with the spirit that you have these, you know, it has this effect on you, right? So that language of being filled with the spirit, one of the common places is um, Ephesians 5, 18. I think a better translation is uh, filled by the spirit. Uh, and, or even if you want to use the word with, I, I do agree with Kelly. I think that it to be filled with the spirit, to be filled by the spirit means that the spirit is the controlling force, right? So if you're filled with rage, that means it's your anger that's controlling you. What I would say is, okay, we always want to go back to scripture. How does scripture describe what happens in those moments? So in Ephesians 5.18, how does Paul describe the life that is filled by the spirit? It's singing and making melody to God. It's encouraging one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's gratitude, it's gratefulness, and it's living in accordance with the roles that God has given us, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. According to Paul, that's what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. And so I think we should seek experiences that match what we see in scripture. Did you want to say Yeah. You don't have to ask my permission. Oh, no, thank just... you. Wow. Uh, 
I'll mark that. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big. I, 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 I'm not a big slain in the spirit guy. Uh, that's not. That, that's not my deal. Again, yeah, you know, whatever. You know, Sunday morning, large group slain the spirit fall out, and then the next day you're yelling at your wife and kicking the dog, like, like, it, it, you know, it's about but walking with the Lord. Man, is about net transformation and doing the grind Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, in these molecular kind of transformative moments in life. I mean, you know, you you've all been to summer camp and had the high and then you become an adult and you go to a men's retreat and you have the high and and so we all have different variations of what that high looks like and you know how quickly the high wears off and if there's not the grounding if there's not the nuts and bolts when it's not sexy there's not lights on you're not getting noticed by anybody it's just you and the lord one-on-one dealing with the interior issues of your life and and walking it out and so i get real turned off by any of that large group public kind of anything that's not uh, meeting with these people and, and they're doing but then I'm struggling to read my Bible or pray or evangelize and I'm not making disciples of anybody on my own which we can get into a debate about speaking in tongues but I don't think we can debate that Jesus told us to go and make disciples that's right. and so are you discipling people right. that's not hard to figure that out yeah. Yeah, quickly, and then we'll go on. And to clarify, I mean, slain in the spirit is not language that the vineyard uses. That's not language that I use. You guys ask for a definition. I'm telling you a definition according to Pentecostals. But I agree with everything that has been said from the stage, including the importance of pursuing experiences that align with Scripture. Um, tongues and being filled with the spirit, filled to overflowing with the spirit, is consistent with Scripture. It's language Paul uses consistently. Being filled with the spirit in Scripture is... Um, always um, a, a one-time filling, and it's an ongoing progressive filling. So I'm saying, again, charismatic, charismatics, we would say when the Spirit fills you, when the Spirit comes, however that manifests, that could be tongues, that could be healing, that could be prophecy, we just believe in all of it. Um, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit to overflowing all the time. Now, you come to the Vineyard Church, you're not going to hear anybody slain in the Spirit, Okay. You're gonna hear an invitation to listen, an invitation to open to the spirit, an invitation to um, be silent. We're a pretty contemplative, liturgical group, um, but it's, for us, it's both. And again, it's not inconsistent with scripture. That was actually a great segue to my next question because you talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So various people have asked, but I'm gonna pick this one. Basically, people are talking about like baptism, filling, once, when, so this person says, do believers need a separate event of getting, quote, baptized in the Holy Spirit, end quote, to receive gifts other than initial salvation? So let me just say this quickly. I meant to say it when I framed up our issue earlier. All of the people on the panel here, most believers would say that when you say yes to Jesus, when you put your trust in Jesus, when you claim Jesus, that the Spirit indwells you, lives in you. So is that the thing you're talking about? Or is there like a secondary, a second filling, a baptism? Discuss. Let me jump in. Let's clear up Trinitarianism, and this is what our little in three minutes podcast is going to be. Before faith, before faith, I am an enemy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm an enemy of the Triune God. I'm an enemy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Through salvation in Christ, my relationship with the Trinitarian God changed. With the Trinitarian God changes. I am no longer an enemy of the Father, of the Son, or of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus paid for my salvation, which is adoption. At my salvation, I am adopted so that now I become a child of my heavenly father. I become a brother or sister of Christ and I become a temple of the Holy Spirit at salvation. Therefore, and, and maybe we can get into the semantics of definition of terms, and this is, a, this is a big deal. I am not a believer at all in some later baptism in the Holy Spirit. When you give your life to Christ, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, as you walk out your relationship with the Holy Spirit, you will experience awakenings of intimacy in your relationship with the Holy Spirit that can feel like you're getting the Holy Spirit for the first time. And those of you who have been married for any period of time know that in your relationship with your spouse, you will have moments where you feel like you just got married all over again. And if you haven't, I'm sorry. If I just started marital problems, I'm sorry. <laughs> I do marriage counseling. It's 150 bucks an hour and you can get my deal and, 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 and away we go. And so enemy with the Trinity, Trinitarian relationships change. I'm baptized in the, in the ongoing relationship. I have these incredible experiences of intimacy that can feel like I'm getting the Holy Spirit for quote unquote the first time. Amen. Do y'all feel like you need to follow up on that or can we move on? Why does it do that? Hey, hi. Do y'all feel like you need to follow up on that or can we move on? That seemed like something all of you might agree with. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, here we go. Can the sign gifts, I know some of you don't like that terminology, but this is what this person says. Can the sign gifts include communications from angels? Does the cessationist view acknowledge that interactions between humans and angels do still occur? Did not expect that question, but I find it interesting. Do you, go ahead. I just heard a bit. Well, <laughs> she said cessationist, so I was like, okay, it's me and Josh, and I'm holding the microphone, so I guess. Well, I'll we go. want to hear what all of you think. So, I guess to answer the question, uh, can an angel, and by angel, we uh, angel just means messenger. It, there are humans in, in the Bible called angels. Um, so, we're talking about, I assume that this questioner asks a, a spiritual being. Do I think it is possible? Sure. In the same way that I think that miracles are still possible today. Healings can still happen. I've, I've shared this with, with Sarah. At 10 days old, my daughter w went to the hospital with bacterial meningitis. And by God's grace, she survived and she is walking and talking. Absolutely, I believe that that is a miracle. I believe that God used the common grace of the amazing doctors and nurses at Texas Children's. Um, but the fact that she has zero ongoing compl complications, I believe is absolutely a miracle. So in the same way, do I believe that a spiritual being could visit someone and deliver some message from the Lord for them? Sure. I just don't see any evidence from scripture that that should be a normative thing that we should experience and that we should expect. I absolutely agree to the second half. I know that there was part of it that said, is it a sign gift? Um, I, I, I'm hesitant to call um, anything a gift that is not specifically laid out and described as a gift. And so that's how I would respond to that. Do either any of our, cares, our continuationists want to weigh in on angels? Yeah, I think, uh, can we hear angels speak today? I, 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 absolutely we can. And we, we, know, we know this in, in this way. Um, Lucifer, fallen angel, Satan, convinced a whole bunch of the angels to go with and debated how much of the number is. Can we hear Satan today? 
Uh, we you, do have another question about that. You better believe we can, or we, we got a whole lot of other problems. So we, we believe that we can hear the enemy speak. We certainly believe that we can hear an angel speak. What's really fascinating about angels, though, and this is something I'm not particularly, I don't have a tremendous amount of clarity on. I don't believe that there's a gift of hearing angels. That would be, I don't think that would be accurate. But why would God use an angel when he has the Holy Spirit today? And I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying, why wouldn't he just communicate it through the Holy Spirit? There's a place in the Bible, I cannot remember it off the top of my head, where in one sense it says the Holy Spirit spoke and then sometime later it says an angel spoke and it was different words different whatever and so we do have some biblical evidence that that both speak but uh, yeah, absolutely we can hear angels speak but a gift uh -uh. can we hear angels speak sure I mean why not I think like any um, divine revelation that we're getting from God or from the Holy Spirit or from any sort of angel you know, has to be, again, discerned in community. If you hear from an angel, do not go quit your job tomorrow without talking to someone about it. So we wanna check that, right, with scripture. We wanna check that with, you know, who we believe Jesus is. We wanna check that in community with accountability. But yeah, sure. Okay, I have, oh, hi, sorry. Um, okay, I have two questions that are similar. They're both about healing. Um, I think all of you would agree that God still heals today. Would that be accurate? He still heals. There may not be an office of healer. Okay. To the charismatics, but I want to hear everybody. There's two questions. This is the first one. What's the burden of proof for raising of the dead? I'm sure they'd affirm it theoretically, but what would it take for them to affirm that a person, in fact, has this gift? It's got to be the least common gift in church history. And then someone else says, if healing is still a miracle performed, why is it not performed more in my pediatric ICU with all these very faithful people praying for them? Do you need to hear either of those again? Someone said yes? Oh, that was like an amen, okay. Wow. <laughs> I think to address the back end of that, I mean, all of these things are really difficult. Uh, we all know that God certainly has the power to intervene in any situation, um, but we're moving into a, a different conversation about the sovereignty of God in why he chooses to heal in one instance and not in another. Um, our responsibility is not, and even understanding these spiritual gifts, uh, in the early church, you know, where everybody agrees that they existed versus, you know, maybe today where we're having this disagreement. Uh, this was not like a cheat code to have God do everything at the whim of the apostles. Um, and, and, and so ultimately, the claim in the New Testament is not that nobody was ever sick or ever died that was ever in and around all of the apostles. Uh, no, but they did do miraculous signs and wonders. And Every time that happens, that is a testament to God. None of us can step into that and say, we know why God didn't heal in this moment. But every time that God chooses to providentially intervene, that is his grace, and that is a testament to his sovereignty, his power. Um, and do I believe that that still happens today? I think that you go all kinds of places around the world, and we see that God continues to do miraculous things beyond just people coming alive. There are all kinds of things where people have no explanation. It is the supernatural intervention of God in a moment, uh, and we see that happen. 
That was good. Don't forget to talk about dead people coming back to life. I got nothing for you on dead people. Uh, uh, there, there is, uh, hello, check. Okay. This. I'm double fisting. Oh, wait, that was, that was a long time ago. Uh, there is nothing more vexing in my life or my, the expression of my faith than God's work or not work in healing. Nothing more vexing. When I do deliverance work, I go in with absolute confidence that God our Father in the name of Jesus is going to set this person free because he hates Satan and wants to eradicate it. Whenever there is a, a physical health issue, man, my gears just start to grind. I have a daughter that was bedridden for three years. Three years she laid in bed for an undiagnosable chronic illness. She missed third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I have a wife, we've been married 21 years, who's got one of the worst family of origin stories I've ever heard, and she deals with all sorts of chronic health issues. Don't tell me we haven't prayed enough. Don't tell me we haven't had enough people praying. If you tell me we don't have enough faith, I'm gonna express my jujitsu on you and we're gonna have other problems. <laughs> There's nothing in my life that's more vexing, but at the same time, I've been used twice in very supernatural ways I've been used twice and only twice, and I don't claim to have the gift of healing, um, but I have been used to heal people in the name of Jesus, um, only twice. Uh, I could not plan it. I could not tell you it was going to happen. It was just, as Kelly would say, free in the Holy, I think Kelly would say, free in the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord said, do this, and I did it, and, and the person, hey, you laid hands on me, and now the issue that I had, I no longer have. So you can go interview them and ask them how serious it was or whatever, but um, uh, anybody who says they got a grip, grip on when God chooses to physically heal, heal or not heal, I'm going to be a little bit concerned about what they're saying. You have your Bible open, so I assume. Okay. Are you just doing some light reading while we're... Uh, <laughs> I was like, what's uh, Revelation I, about, you know? I, okay. Can I add, add something? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this. I, I had uh, breakfast with a friend the other day. He... Uh, this is more backstory than y'all need to know, but he convinced me to train for a 5K, and he was like, I'll run it with you. And then uh, none of the races worked out, so I was like, man, I lived close to one of the Heights uh, trails, you know, come and we'll, we'll run. Uh, it was miserable, but we did it. And then we had uh, breakfast, and he's, he's leading a small group at our old church, and he was describing how a close friend of his just recently got diagnosed with cancer, and he's, he's wrestling as, you know, their close friend and their small group leader just, you know, he just watched, there's a whole other debate, but uh, he just watched an episode of The Chosen where it depicts some of, you know, Jesus' healings, right? And he's like, God, I know you can do this. You know, why would you not do this to this amazing person? And I totally get that. Uh, so I talked about one daughter. Uh, I have another daughter who passed away. She lived for 31 hours and 22 minutes. So I, I understand that pain. Um, and even as someone who believes that God can and does heal, I think we do a lot of damage when we don't read biblical narrative in context and we try to take that as normative experiences for us today. And so that for, I'll share two examples. One, in the book of Acts, um, that's why I do think the category of sign gifts is valid and helpful, that the miracles that we see performed by the apostles and their close associates um, were to validate their message and even backing up in the gospel. And this is something I just was recently thinking about. Every ailment that we see Jesus heal, the lame, the blind, and on and on and on, those were things that God had said in the Old Testament that would come upon Israel 
if they were unfaithful and unrepentant. And so Jesus is going around and he's healing people. And almost every time in the Gospels, we see faith connected to mm-hmm. the healing that Jesus performed, right? And I, I assume that all of us would disagree with the teaching that says, yeah, you just have to have enough faith. No, I think what's going on there is in miniature, Jesus is showing them that those that have faith, those that received Jesus as their Messiah would experience healing, would experience restoration, would ex- experience a reversal of the curse. And he's previewing what would have happened had Israel collectively received their Messiah by faith. And so we have to understand that when we read the Gospels, that's what's going on when we see the miracles. When we see the miracles in the book of Acts, that's what's going on. It doesn't mean that miracles can't still happen today. They absolutely can. But I think we are setting ourselves up for failure and heartache and disappointment if we, we take these handful of examples that by their very, a miracle by its very nature is out of the ordinary. So we take these handful of examples that we see in these very specific points in redemptive history and we try to make that normative for today, I think we're just setting ourselves for a lot of heartache and pain. Okay, I am gonna jump in because I'm gonna try to squeeze like one or two more questions in before we close. But we've got several questions about the other kind of spirit, not the holy one. So here we go, two questions back to back that are similar but not the same. If a cessationist believes that the gifts of the spirit has ceased in this age, what is their approach when faced with demonic activity? Example, demonic possession, idolatry, pagan sacrifices, etc. Second question says, to the charismatic proponent, is it possible to receive prophetic slash accurate communications about the near future from hostile or demonic forces? Do you want either of those questions again? To the charismatic, this is you. Is it possible to receive prophetic or accurate communications about the near future from hostile or demonic forces? Can I, can I quickly answer the first one and then You can, the, Or indeed. the second one. Quickly is my second, favorite word yeah, right now, I yes. can do the second one and then y'all can do, go to the cessationist side. Well, for one, yeah, the, one of the Old Testament passages quoted was that the standard for a true prophet wasn't about whether or not they told you things about yourself or did miraculous things, whether or not they're telling you to be faithful to God's word. So uh, even the Old Testament acknowledges that there are prophets, that people can tell things about you. Um, uh, we could see this uh, numerous times where people operating under demonic uh, power are able to do miracles. Even Pharaoh's uh, uh, ma- magicians. M- magicians could turn their staff into snakes, just God's man ate their snake. So yeah, demonic forces have power, not ultimate power. Anybody else want to weigh in on demons? I, I agreed with his summary right there. Okay, he agreed with him. This is great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this. I have so many questions. I know you guys are like, oh, why she didn't she ask mine? I still have like 30 unread texts and I was going through. But let me do this. If you want to talk to these guys afterwards, come and ask them your questions at the end. We may do a follow-up podcast. I feel like there's something here. But I would just ask you guys to each just go down the line or take turns. What does your view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, how does that view either give you hope or what's like a word that we can leave with given where you stand on this that would be encouraging, a nugget to think about? Give us like a takeaway. It doesn't have to be a mic drop, but just a thought to take away. And then we'll do some more announcements. And then I'm going to try to take a group picture because y'all are beautiful. Who wants to start us off? Final thought. 
Sure, yeah, so uh, my doctoral work is in spiritual formation, leadership and spiritual formation, and so I would encourage you all um, to embrace the gifts of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in your life as an essential part of how you are becoming more and more like Christ. And so not a salvation issue, whether or not you believe in gift of tongues or prophecy or whatever, but to really take an openness, to take a posture of curiosity, to say, uh, Lord, like, what do you want from me in this area? What is my next step? What's a, what's a book I can read? What's a, maybe a church I can attend that might um, push me a little bit out of my comfort zone when it comes to that? Uh, because I do think that it's an important part of the life and the walk of a disciple. Uh, my outfit is not as no, it's not. supernatural <laughs> as my partner's. I need to sit on another part of the panel with the way. It's very intimidating right now. I reject it in the name of Jesus. And the hair. No, I like my hair better. Sorry. Uh, my, uh, my encouragement would be this, man. The Holy Spirit is never going to do anything to you that's not according to the will of our Heavenly Father. Ever. Uh, your Father loves you. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loves you. The Holy Spirit absolutely loves you. At all costs, pursue intimacy with the person of the Holy Spirit. One of maybe 15 or 16 things that the Holy, one of maybe 15 or 16 things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life is give you gifts. One of 15 things the Spirit of God wants to do in your life is give you gifts. The, the world of the Spirit is gorgeous and magical. Whatever you have to do to be released, to give a, the, the Holy Spirit freedom to do whatever He wants to do in your life, may God our Father lead you in that direction that you can experience the living waters of the Spirit of God from John chapter 7 and the mouth of Jesus. Peace. <laughs> yeah, I think that with spiritual gifts, it's important for us all to remember that one, these gifts are from God, and two, they have a purpose, which we see clearly in Scripture, which is to build up His church. Uh, and so these are a good thing. These are part of God's goodness to His people. And I think one of the most hopeful things that I see, we look at 1 Corinthians where so much of this uh, debate takes place, and I think it's very relevant for how we're fighting uh, even still today about these things. We see a church that was in disunity. We see a church that had factions. We had a church that embraced the immorality of the world. Uh, we see a church that then was perverting the good thing that God gave for selfishness. And then what we have in 2 Corinthians right out the bat is a church that has repented and turned away. And that Paul can say with confidence, I'm thankful that you received my first letter. I cried writing that. And so the, the reality is we need to seek the gifts of God, but we need to let God's word dictate and govern how we use them, knowing that if we do, we will be built up, we will be strengthened, we will be unified, and we will be his salt and light in the world. Um, so sent. Sarah needs me to be quick, so I'll give a quick caveat that I think what I'm about to say would be agreed upon by everybody, and I'm responding more to what I've seen be the, the fallout in the average lay church member. And my encouragement would be, we have such an amazing Holy Spirit-inspired gift in the scriptures. So many people that are, are just de facto continuationists are constantly like, Oh, the Lord just won't speak to me. I'm, I'm wrestling with this big decision in life and I don't know what to do. And just the Lord seems quiet and distant, all this sort of thing. The Lord has spoken in the scriptures. Read 
descriptions. Again, I think everybody on here would agree with what I'm saying, so I'm not responding to them. I'm, I'm responding to real life people that I've seen just wrestle with things because they are expecting something that I think is not to be expected when the Lord has got, already given us so much in the scriptures. So dig into the scriptures. Test everything that every single one of us, including myself, has said tonight by the scriptures. Amen. Um, to, to be very quick and brief is the cessationist position gives, um, gives comfort and, and joy when your experience may not lead you there. Um, Peter saying in his second letter, after seeing the risen Christ, spending time with Jesus, watching the transfiguration, perhaps the greatest experience ever seen by any human being on this planet, says that we have something more sure, which is the word of God. Something more sure than any experience, perhaps the greatest experience. And so I believe that uh, this word, to, to echo Mace's points and everybody's points here, that this is where you do your study. This is where you turn to in the dark times. Everyone's Amber Alerts are going off. Okay. Couple quick announcements for you. Hey, couple quick announcements for you before we go, and then Beth is going to pray us out, and then I'm going to try to take y'all's picture. We'll see how it goes. The next theology on tap. Mark your calendars and maybe buy your tickets before the day of. I'm just saying, maybe, maybe. Um, is August 15th, and Dr. James Tour, who's a renowned scientist, is going to be coming and talking about science and faith. Has science made God obsolete? That'll be awesome. Um, I would love it if the members of my outreach team who are here could stand up. I know one of you is like, oh, I didn't want to stand up. I'm looking at you, Armonique. Where are you? Okay, I've got Elliot, Armonique, Evan, Hugo, Jason. Yes, stand up. Mac and Mace. Okay, so these guys, stay standing up. Oh my gosh, I can need some extroverts in here. I know, he's still standing up. Okay. Any of these guys, and they all have, except for Hugo, they all have a, a, like a name tag on. If you have questions about things you heard tonight, maybe you want someone to pray for you. Maybe, I mean, everyone up here would also pray for you. But um, maybe you have some follow-up questions. You can sit down now. Thank you. Um, you can find one of those folks. I'm going to ask them to kind of stay, not these two, but the rest of them. Stay at the back and be available. They have a little rectangular name tag on. Talk to them. Ask your questions. If you want to come to the follow-up a week from today, make sure you check that box. Put your seat cards in there. Put your poker chips in there. Put your thoughts in there. Um, and if anybody wants to help us clean up because you're just feeling the leading of the Spirit, we would love to have you help us. So as Beth is going to pray, I'm going to take a big picture. And then, uh, oh, look, there's the checklist. How did that land there? My goodness. Um, those are the things we need done. So uh, will you pray for us? Thanks. This is uh, Beth. She's on our leadership team. Uh, God, we just thank you so much for bringing all of these people out here today, um, especially if it was their first time, just to get to witness what it looks like for members of your body and your church to discuss uh, things that we may disagree with. Um, and we thank you ultimately for your spirit that we know um, that all of us would agree unites us as one body, um, one body of Christ. And we just thank you for this conversation and the further conversations that it will spur on as we continue to grow in our knowledge and love of you um, as St. Paul prayed for us. And we love you and ask all of this by the power of your spirit in the name of your son, amen.